Hi, and thank you for listening to this message from Shepherd's Gate Church, located in Shelby Township, Michigan. To learn more about Shepherd's Gate and to access more content, visit sgatechurch.org. Good morning. Good to see all of you today. It looks like there's a little bit of extra elbow room in your chairs. I don't know why that is. Uh, It might be because it's a little snowy and cold out there. And so here you are, the brave Michiganders that have endured the first Michigan winter. Do you ever notice in Michigan, we have to get through the first snowstorm. And like in a couple weeks from now, people will be flying 100 miles an hour over snowbanks, right? It's like you just got to get through that first step. So we're so glad that you're here. My name's Tim. I get the privilege of being the lead pastor. We know there's a ton of people that are joining us online from the comforts of their couches, whether they're their couches here in Michigan, or I also always love to give a special shout out to our snowbirds. Uh, who are shoveling the sunshine, and you still tune in each and every week with us, so we're glad that we have the staff and the volunteers and the capability to do that. Uh, We are in a series on Genesis. This is actually Genesis Part 3, and uh, this is the second week in Genesis Part 3. We started last week, and so we have uh, some topics, as you've heard, the next three weeks that we're going to be diving into that do have a PG-13 rating, so parents, once again, just want to make you aware of that. And part of our heart, just so you know here, as a church. Uh, We love to do books of the Bible. And when you do a book of a Bible, you go chapter by chapter, verse by verse. You don't skip any of the texts that are in there, even the ones that, that maybe confuse us or make us uncomfortable or maybe ones that just need further explanation. And so that's going to be the case not only today, but it's going to be the case the next three weeks. And uh, because of the sensitive nature of the topic that we're talking about today, which we're going to be talking about sexual sins, so I'll just let you know that up front, uh, I want to reference a couple messages that I gave last year in the month of January as part of the Genesis series, and it's the second sermon and the fifth sermon. And so uh, I specifically talk about male and female in the second sermon, and there's a whole uh, kind of unpacking of gender, gender confusion, those kind of things, transgenderism in particular, and then week five on husband and wife and going through the scriptures of what the Bible says about marriage. And so uh, if something piques your interest today and you want to dig dig into even more what our church uh, believes, and you haven't been here, uh, maybe you've only come the last couple of weeks or a couple of months, I would just refer you back to those messages as well. Uh, but as I kicked off last week, I said, here's, here's uh, what we're going to be doing uh, as a church, because when it comes to difficult text in the Bible, pastors really only have three options. And I want you to think about this, because at the end of the day, it's the pastor that not only writes the sermon, but has to be the one that delivers the sermon. And so uh, you can obviously ignore certain texts in the Bible. You can have a whole career as a pastor. You can have a 40-year career, 50-year career, and, and then just avoid certain passages of Scripture. It's actually not that hard to do, and you just remain in a certain light, and everybody loves you, and you don't really ever, you know, make people uncomfortable, or maybe make people uncomfortable with some of the text that you have to grapple with as a Christian. The second option is this, you can dismiss it. You can just say, okay, well, there's these passages of Scripture, and those are for a particular people at a particular time, and so they don't apply to us anymore. Or you can say, oh, well, the scriptures, they're actually, they're, you know, for us as a pastor that you can then go to them and it's up to you on how you want to interpret them according to your congregation and the culture at the time. 
And actually, we'll be getting more into that next week and what we've seen in denominational trends, uh, specifically here in America. Or the third, and this is kind of what we've adopted here at Shepherd's Gate, and obviously what I've adopted, uh, being in the one in the role that I'm at, is that we just believe that God has called us to speak the truth in love. Now, when I say that, I will recognize there are pastors, there are churches out there that stop at truth. And they will speak the truth and they will hammer down the truth and they will tell everyone they're sinful, awful people. And they'll specifically point to certain groups of people or certain sins. And then that's it. That's the end of the message. But it's actually not what Jesus told us to do. He told us to speak the truth in love. Now, I've also seen it where the focus becomes on the love part and we go so far into the love category that we forget that there's also the truth of God's word. And so what we said we're going to commit as a church is living in the tension between truth and love. That these are hard topics, and sometimes they're difficult to to talk about given the culture that we live in and the people that God has placed in our lives. And so we cry out to God, and we ask God, God, will you help us navigate what your word says, because this is a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church, we believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, which means the Bible does not contain errors. We believe that God actually inspired all of the people that wrote the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and that all of Scripture is profitable for us, that it corrects us, that it rebukes us, that it trains us in how to be the righteous people that God has actually called us to be. Now, I will say this, because I know the next generation coming up, and maybe you're part of that and you're here today, that what we talk about today is very important to your generation, if not the most important issue that you're grappling with. And I want you to know, as your pastor, that I want to hear from you, that I want to I know what it is that, that you see and you hear and that you're kind of experiencing as God has placed you in a strategic generation and as you try to grapple with these things as well. I'll tell you this, no matter what generation you're from, maybe you've done some research, maybe you've dug into different passages, maybe you have a a different belief system. I do not want to lose a relationship with you. I would love to engage in those conversations and together, let's continue to figure out who it is that Jesus has called us to be. Does that make sense? So we'll make sure we're all on the same page. And especially, I'll say it again for the next generations coming up, if today, like, you leave here and you're angry or you're watching online and you're like, I'm never tuning in, I'm never listening to that bald guy ever again, <laughs> just give me the next three weeks. Give me the next three weeks as we literally slow this portion of Scripture down to a snail's pace, and we go over these passages of of Scripture with a fine-tooth comb. And at the end of the next three weeks, if that's where you're at, I get it. I understand it. But just know it doesn't change how I feel about you. It doesn't change in wanting to be in relationship with you, whether you believe like I believe, or you interpret Scripture the way that I interpret Scripture. Most importantly, is keeping that relationship with you. And you'll hear more about that at the end. So last week, what I said was, these are kind of the three questions that that, that are overarching in this series. The first one is this, how does God deal with continual unrepentant sin? And those words are in there on purpose because you can actually be in continual sin and repent. See, repenting of sin is different than continual unrepentant sin. The second question we've been asking is this, when does God decide his mercy has come to an end? 
Are there other times in Scripture, are there times throughout the Bible, are there times even in our day and age when we just see that God just says, that's it, I'm done, I have no more mercy, I've given you chance after chance after chance. Clearly, you do not want to change your ways, and so my mercy comes to an end. And the last one is this, well, what is it we've been called to do with those in our lives that we present Jesus to because we believe he is the way, the truth, and the life? We talked about this last week, no one comes to the Father except through him, who reject Jesus. And they reject his teachings, they reject the Bible, and they want nothing to do with it. How do we navigate those relationships? Now, before we get into Genesis 19, we do have to rewind to Genesis 18, because we believe so firmly in giving you things in context. In fact, last week we started in Genesis 18, and so we're going to go back and look at some of the same passages of Scripture. Genesis chapter 18, verse 1 starts this way. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. Remember I told you this last week. Here's the part I didn't tell you. Abraham looked up and he saw three men standing nearby. And when he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them. Look at what he does. He bowed low to the ground. Well, they have the conversation, and when the men get up to leave, they look down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. So he's being a hospitable host. He's seeing them on their way out. And it says in verse 22 that the men turned away, and they went toward Sodom. And as these two men go toward Sodom, Abraham turns toward the Lord, and this is when Abraham and the Lord have a conversation on whether or not God is actually going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And would he do it if there was 50 righteous people, 45 righteous people, 40, 30, 20, all the way down to 10? And that's how we ended last week. So here it is, Genesis chapter 19, verse 1. If you got your Bible, you want to follow along, this is great. It says this, the two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening. Now, these two angels just didn't appear out of nowhere. The two angels are the two men that just spent time with Abraham and his wife, Sarah. Now, all of a sudden, Lot is on the scene, and Lot is sitting in the gateway of the city. And whenever you sit in the gateway of the city, it shows us that you're a prominent person, that you're a person of influence. And it says, when he saw them, he got up to meet them. He does the same thing Abraham does. He bows down with his face to the ground. Now, isn't it interesting that when we talk about angels in church, usually there's only two times a year that we talk about angels. Does anybody know when that is? Christmas and Easter. Which people that only come on Christmas and Easter probably just assume we talk about angels every single week because that's all they ever hear. Christmas and Easter, we talk about angels. But here we have actual angels that are at work in our account. We believe that angels are real. We believe that angels are actually still among us to this day. And it's because of Hebrews chapter 13, where we're told, make sure that you show hospitality to strangers. Because for by doing some, or by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to who? Without knowing it. Now, I know people in our church that'll tell me stories. They'll tell me of accounts where they were in a crisis and all of a sudden there was a person or a group of people that were there to minister to them and to help them through that crisis. And then once the crisis was, 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 came to an end and they went back to try to figure out who the people were to thank them, they couldn't figure out where the people came from. See, I do. I, I believe and I know our church believes that, that angels still exist today and they exist for our good. 
Well, this is what it says. My lords, Lot said, he, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. He's talking to the angels. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. But Lot insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He actually prepares a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate it. Angels can take on the form of a human being and can even actually eat food. Well, before they had gone to bed, all the men, think about this, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. And here it is. Here's the verse that so many point to. Here's the verse. Here, here, this is the key phrase in this whole thing of what is it that this passage means? What is it that this passage is pointing to? And I want to go ahead so you can see this because Lot went outside to meet them. He shuts the door behind him and he says, no, my friends. And the reason that he's friends with these people is because he's lived in Sodom for a long time. Don't do this wicked thing. He calls what they're about to do wicked. Now go back because here's, here's kind of a couple options that you have when you read this text. Someone would point to this text and they would say, this shows you that homosexuality is wrong. A man with a man is wrong. And here's the text, here's the proof, here is the sentence in scripture. Others would say, no, 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 it doesn't actually explicitly say that in this text. In fact, what, what's, what's wrong in this text, what the sin that's being committed in this test, text, the wickedness, is rape. That they're trying to force themselves on these two men, the angels. Others still would say, no, you're missing it all together. That's not it at all. It's the fact that they're not being hospitable. It's the fact that they're shutting them out. And so those are the three main things that I've heard as I've researched this. So again, he goes out, he tells them, don't do this wicked thing. Then Lot says this, look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you and you can do whatever you like with them. But don't do anything to these men for they have come under the protection of my roof. How many would say that this is very bizarre? Every hand in here should be up. Abraham pleaded with God to save 10. Abraham pleaded with God to save his family, the righteous people. This is righteous Lot. And yet here he is turning to the men of the village, trying to protect these guys that he just met and willingly giving up his daughters. Fathers in here that have daughters, this hits you at a different level. You can't even imagine like, how someone could come to this point and have this much sinfulness in them to be able to even do something like that. But even in the context of this passage, you have a few options. One is some will tell you like, oh, well, well, wait a second here. Maybe he was just being facetious. Maybe he was just saying, oh, hey, you don't want these guys. I have these virgin daughters and you can have these virgin daughters. And everyone laughs and parts ways. 
That's option one. Option two is this, is that he knew that they wanted to sleep with men and they weren't attracted to women, so he was offering them something that they knew that he wouldn't, they wouldn't actually take up. That's the second option. The third option is this, and I want you to think about what we've been talking about as we've looked at the book of Genesis. When Abraham and Lot, when God was blessing both of them, and they had to split up from each other in order to be able to uh, manage their households, Lot chose property north of Abraham. He chose the best property, and Scripture tells us that he pitched his tents near Sodom. And just a few verses later, we find that, that because he's near Sodom, all of a sudden now he's living in Sodom. So much so that these kings came and actually took Lot and, and his family and his possessions captive. He became a prisoner of war. They took them out of Sodom. Abraham finds out, has to actually assemble an army to go and fight back these kings to bring back Lot and his family and all his possessions. And you think this would have been a clue for Lot. Why didn't Lot go back to at least being near Sodom? Or why didn't Lot go back and talk to Abraham and say, hey, is there any way we can share the land that's around you? No, what does he do? He goes right back living in Sodom. Because here's the reality. He was living in Sodom, but Sodom was also living in him. And when you put yourself in a sinful situation, when you are 24-7 surrounded by wickedness, which again, the scriptures tell us over and over again, Sodom is a wicked place, Sodom is a wicked place, Sodom is a wicked place. There's other scriptures that point to Sodom and tell you that it's a wicked place. When you put yourself in a, sin a sinful situation over and over and over again, you become numb to it. All of a sudden, it doesn't actually seem like it's that big of a deal anymore. This is how affairs are started. This is how pornography begins to take over people's lives. You name the sexual sin, whatever the perversion is, it starts off small and slowly but surely, like a frog in a kettle, you become accustomed to it. You become used to it. And I would even say in our day and age, because obviously we know the city is corrupt. We know the city is full of sin. We actually can do it so much easier than they could back then. We have technology. All of you have access, whether that be you have a Netflix subscription, you have a Hulu subscription, you watch uh, HBO. If you pulled out your cell phone, if you have your cell phone here, it would take you less than a second to pull up a porn site. All of us have access to incredible amount of sexual sin in our day and age. And what is it that God would be speaking to us? What are the guardrails that we should have up in our lives? How do we keep ourselves from being sucked into this vortex and this culture that we find ourselves in? Hold on to that for a moment. Verse 9 says this, Get out of our way, they replied. This fellow came here as a foreigner. Now he wants to play the judge. So here's the men of the city telling Lot, you're a foreigner. You're not going to tell us what to do. We'll actually treat you worse than them. Hey, once we get in there and do what we want to do, we're going to come back, we're going to find you, Lot, and we're going, to make, we're going to do things that are even worse, which I don't even know what that means. And they kept bringing pressure on Lot, and they moved forward to break down the door. And so here's Lot literally trying to defend his family, literally trying to, to defend his home, 
And it says the men inside, the angels are the ones that reached out and they pulled Lot back into the house and they shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, both young and old, with blindness so that they could not find the door. And you think that would have ended it. You think they would have gotten the clue as this miracle is taking place, as God is using these angels to actually perform a miracle on earth, causing blindness to all of them. And now you have these men that are literally blind, trying to find this door, trying to break into this house. Well, the two angels said to Lot, do you have anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you Get them out of here. Here's your warning, because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry of the Lord against his people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. And here it is. It's not a a question anymore. This isn't a question between God and Abraham of, of, should I destroy him? Should I not destroy him? Maybe I'll destroy him. No, now they are telling Lot, this is actually truly going to happen. And so Lot goes out and he spoke to his son-in-laws who were pledged to marry his daughters. And he said, hurry and get out of this place because the Lord is about to destroy this city. But his son-in-laws thought he was joking. Nah, you know, that, that, that ain't gonna happen. Come on, Lot. There's no way that, that this city would be destroyed and that God would do that. See, when you study scripture and you study certain passages of scripture, one of the key elements that I can tell you that you have to do as you study the Bible is this. You have to know this principle that scripture interprets scripture. And so to look at this text, to look at this exchange between Lot and the angels and the men of the city, it's important to go to other places of scripture and to say, okay, God, okay, this is what you're saying in this context, at this time, in this place. What are the other scriptures that speak specifically to what is taking place in Genesis chapter 19? And so what we're going to do is we're going to go to Romans chapter 1. And this is a letter that God inspired the apostle Paul to write to the church in Rome. But I want to give you the context of what was taking place at Rome as Paul is writing this letter and as the church is reading this letter out to the gathered assembly of God's people. Rome was a place that was very focused on masculinity. They loved going to war. They loved creating men who were warriors. And the men who were warriors were not only warriors on the battlefield, they were warriors in the bedroom. And if you were the head of the house and you had a wife and you had a family and you had slaves, because that was popular, that was normal back then, you could sleep with whoever you wanted. In fact, the, the, the culture norm at the time was for men to sleep with boys. And so you have a whole generation, a whole culture of people where the men are sleeping with the boys. And of course, as the boys grow up, they don't know any difference. So they turn around now as they become men and they begin to sleep with boys. Rome at the time was anything but peaceful. Rome at the time was anything but godly. And yet somehow God calls people to go to Rome, to plant a church, to be light where there's no light, to be salt where there's no salt. And then God inspires Paul to write a letter to encourage them. And so this is what he says. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because of what? Your faith is being reported all over the world. 
The fact that you're rejecting culture, that you're pushing back, that you have decided to follow God as your creator, and here you are living differently than everybody else. And do you know, everyone knows the intense pressure that you're under. And because of that intense pressure, and because you're standing on the firm word of God, it's actually being reported all over the world. Paul, in the same chapter, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm going to tell you the truth because you need to hear the truth. It is the power that brings everyone to salvation to everyone who believes. We want all of Rome to be saved. We want everyone that is lost and broken, whether they, whether they commit you know, lying or stealing or whether they've committed the most heinous of sins, we want everyone to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. But he says these words, which are the same words we find in Genesis. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against the godliness and the wickedness of people. It's that mercy and wrath, tension. God's wrath is about to come because he's given people over and over and over a chance to repent, a a chance to come to their senses, a chance to realize the error of their wicked ways. And he goes on to say, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor they gave thanks to him. They just completely reject God. And because they completely reject God, because they've made themselves their own God, their thinking has become futile. Their foolish hearts are completely darkened. They live for themselves and for their own gratification. And because of that, therefore, God gave them over to sinful desires of their hearts And from the heart, it led to their bodies, sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. And do you know that when you completely reject God and you want nothing to do with him, you will not only worship idols on this earth, you will find something to worship. You can also worship other human beings, including physical bodies. You can worship your own physical body. You can worship the body of other people. And trust me, we see this in our culture. We see how much the human body is glorified in our culture today and the sex symbols and how sex sells and all the other things that we get to experience in our day and age. He goes on to say, because of this, so because of this, they reject God. God gave them over to their shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Or they received the due penalty for their sin. And as a Bible-believing church, we would look at this scripture And we'd say, here's the guidelines, here's the boundaries that God has not only given to the church in Rome, he's given to us today because he knew 2,000 years later we would have access to this and we would be reading this. And we point us all the way back to what we looked at last year, that God has put us on this earth. First, there's two genders, male and female. And number two, he he has called us and compelled us into marriages with a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage and what it is that God has ordained and that no one should ever break the covenant that God has brought together. We look at that, we know that to be true. We believe that to be true. And again, that's where it gets sticky. That's where people are like, yeah, Let's not, let's not read Romans 1. Let's just go to Romans 2. There's some really good stuff later on in Romans. Why do we got to talk about this? 
And I'll tell you this, because I firmly believe the only two places where truth is preached in 2024, in our day and age, is in our homes and in Bible-believing churches. You're not going to get it on the television. You're not going to get it on the computer. You're not going to get it on your cell phone. In fact, they've already proven it in some of the bigger companies, which I won't even name them. Whatever browser you use to search the internet, they've already developed algorithms where they, where they will hide things from you. Well, they will twist and distort and manipulate what truth actually is. And so if you're not preaching truth and passing down truth in your home, or if you're not going to a church that's preaching truth, you're not going to get it anywhere else. And we will live in a version of our own Sodom here on earth. But I'm thankful that it doesn't end in Romans. See, Paul writes another letter to a church in Corinth. And let me give you a little context before I read the passages in 1 Corinthians. As God is inspiring Paul to write these letters, there's a guy named Nero, who's the ruler. And he has all sorts of sexual dysfunctions. Go home today, you can research this guy. There's proof of this. In fact, after he had all these failed relationships and marriages, he decides to go find a young boy. And he has this young boy castrated, and then he marries this young boy, and he turns this young boy that he's castrated into his wife. That was what was going on when Paul wrote the letter to the church in Corinth. And so these are the words that he tells the church in Corinth. Do you not know that unrighteousness will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor rivalers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. The culture that you live in, all the things that you see, the evilness of man that is existing in and around Corinth at this time, if they do not repent of their ways, if they refuse to turn to the one true and living God, they will perish. And that's a harsh reality. But what's so beautiful about Scripture, again, the tension between God's justice and God's mercy is what Paul writes in the very next verse. Because he's writing this to the church. He didn't write this to the community in Corinth and somebody went out on the, street, on the city street and read this in an open public forum. He wrote this letter to the church so that it would be read in the church. And he says these words to him. He says, and that is what some of you were. The church at that time, full of people who had done horrible, awful sins. People that not only maybe got themselves involved in affairs or they got themselves involved in who knows what kind of sexual perversions. People that were addicted to alcohol. People that were addicted to, to finances and swindling people. People that were habitual liars. This is the church when they sent people to plant the church in Corinth. The church was made up of people that were in the darkness and the Holy Spirit got a hold of their lives and brought them into the light. 
And now they're living in the tension of the culture that they've grown up in, the culture that they live in, and yet they know the truth because of what God has done in their lives. And he's telling them, this is what some of you were. And so as I look at these things, and as I look at our church here at Shepherd's Gate, I know for a fact that nobody in here would want to go back in time and tell everybody else in the church their sins. Is that a safe assumption here this morning? Nobody wants to rewind back to their past. And some of the things that people at Shepherd's Gate have gotten themselves caught up in, things they never thought they could ever do or say or think. But yet, look at the mercy and grace of God. You were washed You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Here's the gospel. You were washed by the blood of Jesus. When Jesus hung on a cross, it was his blood that was shed. An innocent man that came to this earth to die for you and for me, for our sins, all of our sins, including our sexual sins that we're actually justified. And if you don't know this word, the simplest definition is this, is that it's just as if you hadn't sinned. That when you recognize God as your creator, that you realize you're a sinner and you confess your sins to him, that he forgives you instantaneously. And when God the Father sees you, he doesn't see you and your sin anymore. He sees what it is that Jesus has done for you. You are justified as if you had never sinned. And then what he does is he sanctifies you and he puts you on this road so that now each and every day that you wake up and go to bed, every day you wake up, go to bed, every day you wake up and go to bed, through the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you because he's given you that faith to help you stay within the parameters and the boundaries that God has for your life because he knows what's best for you because he's the creator and you're not. This is why church is so important. Did you know that? This is why coming weekly to church and being in Bible studies and being around fellow Christians is so important. Again, we're going into times that we're not even sure what this is all going to look like. We don't know what the culture is going to look like in five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. And I know this because I hear your hearts, those of you that are raising kids. You're worried. And you have a right to be worried because you're like, okay, this is where it's at now. What's it going to look like 10 years from now? And how do I have these conversations with my kids? And how do I help them navigate all of this? Be connected to a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church that will give you the resources and to help you and to lock arms with other people that have kids as well that are trying to navigate how to be salt and light in the community and the world and the time that we live in. See, when you read this sentence and it says, that is what some of you were, What we should see today all over the world are testimonies of people that have come out of maybe some of the strongest holds that the devil has had on people. And believe it or not, I've done a ton of research on this. I've watched so many different testimonial videos. And I have some that I want to share with you today because I want you to hear it from people from their own lips, their own experience. And so the first clip you're going to see is from a woman who was a lesbian and she was in several lesbian relationships and what it was that God did for her and how God rescued her from that lifestyle. The second clip, you're going to see this young man who's now a street preacher, but he grew up in a a lesbian home with two lesbian moms. And you're going to hear really important things. What What I want you to really hone in on in these clips 
is how they challenged the church to respond in our day and age. So let's watch this together. I did discover the truth that when you take what's in the dark and bring it into the light, it breaks the power of the enemy to energize that sin in your life. But when we keep sin quiet and hidden and silent, it actually energizes the enemy and we are naturally going to be opposed by God because God opposes the proud. When we're too proud to get our sin into the light because we're afraid of what other people would think of us and we wear a mask and we pretend like everything's okay, you will stay in bondage in those areas. But you know what the scripture says? He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. When we humble ourselves and we take what's in the dark and we bring it into the light and we say, you know what, I'm, you're gonna, you might think crazy things about me and this may change your opinion of me and all of that, but I'm desperate enough to know God and to be real and to be honest. And I need the grace of God in my life, his power and his desire to do his will. That's the grace of God. I need his power. I need his desire to do his will. So I was willing to take a risk. So I, I asked my campus pastor if we could talk I was 21 years old at the time. I had never told a single person on planet Earth what I was struggling with. I honestly thought I was the only person dealing with what I dealt with because nobody was talking about it back in 1994. So I talked to my campus pastor and I'm cringing inwardly. I'm waiting for him to like rebuke me, expose my sin to the group, kick me out of the community for being such a wretched sinner. And so when I told him my deepest, darkest secret that I had never told any human being, he looked me straight in the eyes and he said, Linda, thank you for sharing that with me. I know that took a lot of courage. And I want you to know that doesn't change our opinion of you. We love you. We see the hand of God on your life. And we're going to get you the help that you need. That was not the response I was expecting from my campus pastor. My brain is like, tilt, 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 does not compute. That wasn't supposed to happen. I'm walking away from that conversation and I'm praying in my heart and I'm like, what was that? Ask the Lord to speak to my heart. What you just saw was a picture of my heart and how I feel about you. I love you. I'm sad that you're hurting and I want to get you the help that you need. Now, I'm so glad my campus pastor didn't respond the way some of the body of Christ are responding today. We are in a dilemma today because culture has so shifted. Back in 1994, nobody was endorsing celibate gay Christianity and saying, you can be gay, just don't act on it, but take it as your identity and all of that. And we feel like in our culture today that if we love people, we have to affirm them. Love is not equal to affirmation. Jesus loves us, but he doesn't affirm every desire and decision that we make, right? The scriptures tell us to speak the truth in love. And sometimes the truth is hard for us to hear. Sometimes the Holy Spirit comes and he convicts us of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. But he does it in such a way that it doesn't destroy us. It doesn't condemn us. It convicts us and draws us closer into God's presence. And that's how God wants to use us as agents of healing, agents of salt, agents of light in the world today where we speak the truth with compassion without compromising the message of the gospel. Where in LA did you grow up? So I grew up in a small town called Duarte, California. So nobody knows where that's at. So it's about 10, 15 minutes east of downtown Los Angeles. So that's the city I grew up in. Okay, and you had two moms growing up. 
Mm-hmm. So tell me your family dynamic. How did your moms meet? Yeah, well, I think what was really interesting is when you think of my family dynamic, a lot of people ask the question, well, how was it, right? But you got to understand, it was normal for me. It's all I knew. And I remember my mom told me this story probably when I was around 14 or 15 years old because, you know, obviously I wasn't going to understand it when I was younger. And the lady that she was with when I was born, they actually just met through some mutual friends. And my mom had always desired to have a child. And so she started to notice, okay, I'm getting older here. My body has a certain age limit for having children. And she said, you know what? I'm going to have a child. And so she decided to go get artificially inseminated. And then that's how I was born. How is she taking this change in you? Well, I think my mom had probably seen that the last three, four years of my life, that my life was not exactly looking like what it looked like when I first got saved. Just because when you're not walking with God, your language changes, your demeanor changes, your actions change. So then all of a sudden, my mom's probably sitting there going, okay, 2020 comes. My son, all of a sudden, I haven't heard him talk about Jesus for a few years. Now he's telling me he wants to go to the streets. He wants to preach the gospel. Like, what is going on? But here's the amazing thing about my mom. Because when we think of the LGBTQ community and the church, we think of a long history of tension, which there's a lot of tension there. But with my mom, it's this interesting dynamic where she loves me to such a place that she always, even to this day, respects and honors what I do. She's even one of my financial donors. On a monthly basis. Really? Isn't that crazy? Okay. So you grow up with parents in the LGBTQ lifestyle. And then you grow up, you publicly disavow it. How did she take it then when you obviously had to have a sit down conversation with her and say, mom, I'm a Christian. I don't agree with this lifestyle, even though I still love you. Yeah. Well, when I first got saved, I didn't really know like how to share my faith. I just knew like, that's right. That's wrong. You know? So I remember just having conversations with my mom, just saying, mom, like, I love you. But like, I believe that Jesus is real and what he said is true and that the Bible is true. And so we never really had any arguments. It was just kind of like, okay, Ross, like you believe that this is the lifestyle I live. And that's just kind of how it is. Now, obviously, as I matured in my walk with God, I've had more real conversations, just sharing the reality of who Jesus is. So the point is, I'm believing for my mom to have an encounter with Jesus where it goes from a head knowledge to a heart revelation. That's what we all need. Does she just listen to you or does she ask you kind of follow-up questions when you try to share the gospel with her? I love my mom because she'll literally know when I'm going to go preach somewhere and she'll text me and she'll go, go get them. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like this, this breaks every single box, right? It, but don't get me wrong. There's definitely people, a part of the LGBTQ community who do not respect Christians and even worse, talk bad about them. But when it comes to my personal relationship with my mom, And I think this is why relationship is so key to what God is doing right now is because when you actually build relationship with people, they don't just see you as someone who has a set of beliefs or ideologies. They see you as a person. And when they see you as a person, then they're actually willing to have a conversation. And this is what we've committed to do as a church. That in one hand, God has called us to hold on to his word. To preach his word to teach his word, to pass the truth on to the next generation, to allow God to create the boundaries and parameters for our life. While simultaneously we are called to hold on firmly to those that God has placed in our lives. You do not have to let go of one or the other. You can live in the tension of both of these realms. And that's what we're going to continue to do as a church. Amen. 
We hope this message was helpful to you today, and we welcome you to join us live in person or online every Sunday. If you're interested in accessing more on-demand content, please visit sgatechurch.org.